Last week we started a, a new series on Amos. And Amos is one of the minor prophets. And because of that, he kind of holds, generally in Christian circles, a little bit of minor significance to us a lot of times. But I, I have found here recently, no, well, I mean, no piece of scripture is minor, first of all. But I found here recently, especially, that Amos has some significant implications for the modern church. And the reason for that is because Amos was written to Israel in a state where they were really falling away from God. They never really, after the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom split, Israel, the northern kingdom, never really followed God. But in the time of Amos, I mean, they were really far off. And a lot of the oracles that Amos is giving to Israel from the, mount, for, for, from the word of God, they're oracles that are especially pertinent to us in, in the time of the modern church. And so there's a lot, there's a lot to, be, to be studied in, in the book of Amos. And that's what we've been doing in this series and we'll continue to do for a few more Sundays. Um, and this morning, we're looking at, at the correlation between how we live our lives on earth, how we live our lives humbly in society and helping others, and how that correlates to the way that we worship God with a humble and contrite heart. And so I'm going to open us with a word of prayer, and then we're going to jump into to this text this morning and, and, and see what the Word of God has for us. Father God, as we study your word today, let it open up to us. Let it be applied to our lives, to the way we live here on earth, to the way that we worship you, and to our desire to worship you with sincerity, love, excitement. God, move with us this morning. Let your presence be felt. And give us wisdom and speak through this message that your voice is heard. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen. You know, there's a, there's a popular saying that I'm sure all of us know when it comes to pride is that pride comes before the fall. And we, we like to point that out, especially to people that we know are prideful and we want to see fall. You know, we, we want to point out that pride comes before the fall and we're kind of hoping that we see the fall. That's, that's generally how that goes whenever we're dealing with someone that we know to be that, that kind of level of pride and arrogance that just kind of gets under your skin. Pride goes before the fall. The truth is, whether we really fully see ourselves as that epitome of pridefulness that we really dislike in someone or not, it is very easy to have that level of pride. To have that, that level of pride that is borderline arrogance, where, where you... You feel so invested in yourself because you see yourself as the most important thing that you really look down on others. And you might say, well, you know, it's important to be invested in yourself. It's important to grow as a person. It's important to focus on, 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 on yourself and doing these things. And, and in fact, that's what the world is emphasizing today. You know, build yourself up. Build your family up. Do all of these things to gain foothold in society. And so it's because of that, because of, you know, that focus in this world today, 
I don't think we see pride in the way that God sees pride. Now, we see focusing on yourself, on being this individual that is really concerned with your family and, 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 and growing and accumulating. We see that as just a part of society, a part of growing, a part of, of building a better life for yourself and your kids. But I wonder, is that how God sees individualism? Is that how God sees our actions? Because I think that in, in many ways, in many ways, we're living in a world filled with pride. We're living in a world filled with self-focus, inward focus. And that has started to infiltrate into the church. And like I said, though, we, we like to see people fall whenever they're filled with pride. Um, there's this story I heard the, the other day of a colonel in the army who had just been promoted to his new position and he, he was sitting in his office and, and, and he was just kind of basking and taking in this new role and he had a knock on the door. And he, he replied to the, to the knock, just a minute, and, and then he wanted to look impressive. He wanted to make sure that the, whoever entered his office knew that he was deserving of this rank, knew that, that he had earned this, this position. So he picks up the phone, and, and, and he starts talking on the phone. Yes, Mr. President, I understand, Mr. President. I'll take care of it, Mr. President. So he's trying to look impressive for whoever's about to come in the room. And, and then he, he says, Mr. President, just give me one second. And, and he calls to the person that's at the door. And he says, go ahead and come on in. And the guy comes in. He says, I'm, I'm on the phone with the president here. I can't talk along. What is it do you want to talk to me about? And, and Private Johnson, who had just entered the room, looks at the colonel and says, well, well, well Colonel, I, I just came in to connect your telephone. Like <laughs> a couple seconds for that punchline to sink in a little bit. Think about how satisfying that would have been for Colonel or for Private Johnson to see that downfall of the prideful and slightly arrogant Colonel. You know, we kind of we enjoy seeing the fall of people that are filled with pridefulness, but overt pridefulness. It's easy to recognize, and it's very satisfying when someone who is overtly prideful, someone who you just, you, you, you just, you see all the time them basking in, in what they're good at or being that little level of arrogance. We, we, it feels good kind of to see them fall. But, but pride is truthfully one of the greatest inhibitors towards a faithful adherence to God. It's an inhibitor to engagement in heartfelt worship. And I would say that pride is one of the, if not the reason, that humanity fell in the first place. That we began to be so focused on self, so concerned with elevating self, that it became impossible to truly submit to God and be humble before God and say, I'm going to fall down in my face and worship you. And so this morning, we're not going to necessarily be looking at how pride caused the fall of all of humanity. But we will be looking at how pride, in many ways, caused the fall of Israel. And the warning that this example that we have in the book of Amos, this warning towards Israel from Amos, how it's applied to the church in the book of Acts and, and the message that we're to receive today. So remember, as we're reading Amos, we're reading the oracles of the first weekend minister, I like to say. 
or my professors like to say. This guy was from the southern kingdom of Judah. He was a shepherd, which is why we have the sheep up here, not because we just like having sheep. He was a shepherd, and he would find himself hearing a word from the Lord, and he would sprint up to the northern kingdom of, of Israel to give this word of the Lord to the people there. And it's ironic that this guy from Judah had to go to the northern kingdom because there were prophets in the northern kingdom. There were people that, that would go, that, that lived in the northern kingdom, that served God, that were supposed to be these guys that would hear the voice of the Lord and tell the king or tell the people, this is what God says. But the issue was, all of those prophets of God that lived in Israel were only concerned with themselves. And so they would give oracles and, and the voice of God to the people and to the king, but it was only good things. It was only the things that would make them well-revered and listened to. It was only things that, that would get them a following, that would get, get, get them rewards. Because if you're a king, who are you going to want to hear? The guy that says, God says that you're going to prosper and reign and, and expand your land. Or the guy that says, God is telling you to humble, and, humble yourself and submit to him or else you're going to be destroyed. You're going to listen to the guy that is saying good things to you. And so the prophets would corrupt the word of the Lord so that they would be elevated, so that they would be revered, so that they would be well known. And it's ironic because you see this in today's society as well with preachers that will heap up thermons and, 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 and say things to make you feel good and get you excited and, and tell you things that, that are, you know, make you think that everything is about prosperity. And if you do all of these right things, then all God cares about is making sure that you're prosperous in this life. But Amos, this shepherd, the entire reason why he had to go to Israel, this northern kingdom, was because the people that were supposed to be the mouthpieces of God there were more concerned about people recognizing them than people recognizing the voice of God. And so it makes me think about the world today, about the church today, how much of messages, especially with social media and the ease of access to hearing preachers speak, how much of those messages from preachers are given because they want to be heard and they want to say things that travel through Facebook and travel through YouTube and travel through everything, things that make people excited. And How much of the messages we hear today from ministers are the word of God? As uncomfortable as that word may be, as much as that word might step on our toes. Because that's where the pride issue gets in the way. You know, I'll say a few things, God, that you want me to say, but, it, but I, I really want to make sure that people are comfortable when they come in here. I really want to make sure that, that we're not, you know, sending people away because what we're preaching, what we're teaching from Scripture isn't too hard. Okay, I want to make sure that people start coming and we build up numbers. So I, I'll say a little bit of what you want me to say, God, but I, I really also, I, I want to say what they want to hear so that, you know, we, we grow, we become more important, so that my, my books sell. In a lot of ways, the modern church needs an Amos. 
We need the guy that's going to come in and say, I'm just here to humbly serve God, and if people don't like what God has to say, they can take it up with him. So here's what God had to say to the nation of Israel. In chapter 4, he's admonishing Israel, and he says in chapter 4, verse 1, Listen to this message, you cows of Bashan, who are on the hills of Samaria, women who oppress the poor and crush the needy, who say to their husbands, bring us something to drink. I mean, if you read chapter 3 as well, Amos isn't holding back to Israel. In, in chapter 3, verse 15, he's talking about what God is going to bring upon Israel. He says, I will demolish the winter house and the summer houses. The houses inlaid with ivory will be destroyed. The great houses will come to an end. What we're seeing here in these chapters, in chapter 3 and chapter 4 of Amos' oracles, is the inciting action that Israel was doing that was really getting to God. And what it had to do with was pride and selfishness. Because that reference in verse 15 of chapter 3, I will demolish the winter house and the summer house. The people of Israel, their wealthy class, the people that was revered and high and prosperous, they were looking down on the needy, on the broken, on those that couldn't provide from themselves. He says in verse 1, listen to this message, you cows of Bashan who are on the hill of Samaria, who oppress the poor. He's calling to this social iniquity within Israel where the people of Israel, the people that needed God to escape their slavery in Egypt, how now they were taking advantage and oppressing their own people. And, he's, and Amos is saying, listen, God has a message for you. God has a message for you who are so steeped in pride and selfishness and self-concern and, and conceit that you don't even see the needy. That you're more concerned with having two houses for yourself than providing and giving someone else the ability to have one house. Listen to this message, you cows of Bashan. God is angry with Israel's social actions, with their trampling of the poor, with the elevation of their pride. And he goes on, he says, The Lord has sworn by His holiness, Look, the days are coming, when you will be taken away with hooks. Every last one of you with fish hooks will go through the breaches in the wall, each woman straight ahead, and you will be driven along toward Harmon. This is the Lord's declaration. Come to Bethel and rebel. Rebel even more at Gilgal. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tents every three days. Offer leavened bread as a thank offering and loudly proclaim your free will offerings. For that is what you Israelites love to do. Now, oracles can sometimes be a little bit confusing because they're poetic language that is used to deliver an emphatic point. The emphatic point here is that Israel was acting completely unethical and immoral. That they were taking advantage and trampling on the lower people of society to elevate themselves. And that social action that was immoral and corrupt and unethical 
correlated with a spiritual corruption as well. In verses 4 and 5, Amos says, Come to Bethel and rebel. Rebel even more at Gilgal. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tenths every three days. That's sarcastic language. If you remember last week, we talked about how Jerusalem was the only place that Israelites were supposed to worship. That was where they were called to worship. The house of God was where they brought their sacrifices to God. But Israel, in this split between the north and the south, said that we are going to worship at Dan, we're going to worship at Bethel, we're going to worship at Gilgal, we're going to worship and offer sacrifices, whatever we want to do, because we get to decide. Why do we have to listen to what God tells us to do? We'll do what we want. So we'll give our, worship, our offerings, we'll give our sacrifices, we'll, we'll come present them before God, we'll do what He asks us, as long as it fits the way we want to do it. So not only was Israel in this state of social corruption where they trampled on the needy, oppressed the poor, were so focused on themselves that they would accumulate and accumulate and accumulate and take away from the people in need, but they also, they just went through the motions in their worship. They said, you know, I'll, I'll give my tents, I'll give my sacrifices, but I'll only do them on my terms. That's like saying, you know, I'll come to church on Sunday, I'll sit in the pew, I'll read the words on the screen. But I'm not going to read my Bible at home. I'm not going to spend time in prayer and growing. I'm not going to, to make sure that I'm living my life in accordance to what Christ calls me to do. I'll do the bare minimum as long as it fits my agenda. As long as it doesn't get in the way of sports. As long as it doesn't get in the way of my vacation. As long as it doesn't get in the way of my job, I'll do what I need to do. So Israel is corrupt socially and elevating themselves and stepping on the poor. And they're corrupt spiritually because they're really only being spiritual when it fits their agenda. And they're about to have some condemnation for it. Before we get to that condemnation part, I want to fast forward to Acts. So we're going to jump back and forth between Acts and Amos. Now think about this for a second. Acts chapter 4. In Amos 4 here, you see the epitome of social and spiritual corruption. That pride had taken complete control of Israel. That, that Israel's social corruption bred spiritual corruption. That, that they were so concerned with themselves that they trampled on the poor and needy and then only went through the motions of worship whenever it fit their schedules. Now let's fast forward about 500, 700 years to when Christ comes and establishes his church and, and renews all things. What's this renewal of attitude look like for the believers that are following Christ? Acts 4, verse 32. Now the entire group of those who believed were of one heart and mind. And no one claimed that any possessions was his own, but instead they held everything in common. With great power, the apostles were given testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was on all of them. For there was not a needy person among them. Because all who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the proceeds of what was sold, and laid them at the apostles' feet. 
This was then distributed to each person as any had need. And Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, a Levite from Cyprus by birth, the one the apostles called Barnabas, sold a field he owned, brought the money, and laid it at the apostles' feet. And Acts, where you see this great reversal within the church, within God's people, where they're no longer concerned with accumulating and making sure that they have a summer and a winter house. They're no longer concerned with stepping on those other people to elevate themselves. Now they're saying, we'll give it all up. We'll give it away. We have enough. We'll, we'll help elders out who are truly in need. We'll, we'll give grace and, and, and love and mercy and, and help those who are struggling. And so you see this renewal of social, of social care for others. The pride issue that was in Israel then during the time of Amos has been completely flipped up down to the point that the disciples are so humble that they're saying we'll live meagerly so that other people able to survive so that other people might be able to come to know Christ as well and this social renewal within the church coincided with a spiritual renewal where as they're caring for those in need as they're willing to give up everything for, for the gospel message to be proclaimed it says that with great power the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was, all on, was on all of them. So it wasn't like they were just going through the motions and saying, okay, you have this, you have this, you have this. They, they, they weren't just systematically making a chart of who they can give what to just so they could mark off a checklist that they did what God asked them to do. They're doing all of these things in correlation with this spiritual renewal. They're saying God has given great grace to He's renewed and restored us. He's given the power of Christ's resurrection. So why do we need to care about all of these things of the world? Let's give them away to people who are struggling. Let's, let's care for people in need. Anyone that has excess, let's help others out. The spiritual renewal through Christ allowed for, spiritual, or for social renewal and how they care for one another. Coincide. So on one hand, in the book of Amos, you have this picture of the epitome of the fall of Israel, steeped in pride, steeped in a concern with self rather than a concern for the ways and worshiping of God. And then on the other hand, you have the epitome of what Christ called his church to be, a humble church that cared for everyone else and submitted to worshiping God and, and renewing their spirit constantly because of Christ. And I wonder, which does the modern church reflect? Do we reflect the early church of Acts that was so indebted to the spirit of Christ within them, that was so enamored with the love of God that they were willing to sell all of their possessions to other people? Or do we fit more of the mold of Israel? Who only worshipped when it was on their terms? Who went through the motions and did what 
God asked them to do as long as it molded and fit to their schedule. Who was more concerned about accumulating all their stuff, even if it meant not caring for those who had far less. Which does the modern church today reflect? And I tell you, if we're being honest, it reflects Israel in the time of Amos. Maybe not holistically. Maybe not every single person. Maybe Amos wouldn't be giving this oracle and, and having a conference with every Christian in the world and saying, you all are doing this. But if we truly search our inner self, we reflect more of Israel in the time of Amos than we do of the church in the time of Acts. And there's a message from both to be said. Listen to what God told Amos, or told Israel through Amos. And I'm not going to read all of these verses. This is verses 6 through 13, but I just want to read parts of it. In verse 6, he says, I gave you absolutely nothing to eat in all of your cities, a shortage of food in all of your communities, yet you didn't return to me. And he says, I withheld rain from you while you were still three months until harvest. I sent rain on one city, but no rain on another, yet you did not return to me. I struck you with blight and mildew, locusts devoured your many gardens and vineyards, but you did not return to me. I sent plagues like those of Egypt. I killed your young men with the sword along with your captured horses, but you did not return to me. I overthrew some of you as I overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, but you did not return to me. He goes on through these verses telling, I, I worked among you. I did things that should have brought you attention to me, but you were concern with yourself. You are so steeped in pride in yourself that you thought, I'm going to make sure that in this hardship, I succeed. And God is saying, no, this hardship should point you to me. This struggle in life should make you realize that there's got to be something more than this life. He says, yet you did not return to me. So he said, in with Sodom and Gomorrah, therefore Israel, that is what I will do to you. Prepare to meet your God. Amos' message for Israel is you're steeped in social corruption. And that social corruption has bred spiritual corruption. And you're so steeped in pride and selfishness that you can't hear the voice of God. like Sodom and Gomorrah, that same judgment is coming to you, Israel. And you might think, okay, well, that's Israel. That is a picture of, of God's people that were apostate, that were worshiping idols, that had completely abandoned God. That's not the church. And you're right, it's not the church. But I want to draw your attention to chapter 5 of Acts. After this passage that we have in Acts that is talking about how all of the believers held everything in common, they gave to those in need, they worshiped God in spirit and truth, they were so devout and so focused that they gave up everything in this world, basically, for the service of God, then you have this narrative 
of two people, Ananias and Sapphira, and said, however, uh, a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, but kept back a part of the proceeds with his wife's knowledge and bought and brought a portion of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. And you might be thinking, that's not wrong. Why is it wrong for them to hoard a portion of it and, and not give all of it? Why can't they keep some of it? They gave half of it. They gave some of it. What's wrong with that? And it's not the fact that they didn't give all of it to God. It was the fact that they didn't respect God enough to tell the truth about it. it. says, Ananias, Peter asked, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the proceeds of the land? Wasn't it yours while you possessed it? And after it was sold, wasn't it at your disposal? Why is it that you planned this in your heart? You haven't lied to people but to God. And when he heard these words, Ananias dropped dead. A great fear came on all who heard. The young man got up, wrapped his body, carried him out, and buried him. And we think, boy, that's a harsh punishment for someone who sold a field and gave some of that proceeds to God. Why is that the punishment? If there was going to be a renewal within the church from the state of Israel, there had to be an emphasis of humility, of truth, of serving God. There could no longer be this part of, I want to have my cake and eat it too. I want people to see that I'm, I'm doing good, that I'm helping the church, but I also want to make sure that I'm focusing on myself just enough. What Paul is saying here is you can't have a foot in the world, Ananias, and a foot in the church. You can't say, I'm going to serve God and people and myself. Because if that's what you're trying to do, Ananias, you are lying to God. And what happened to Israel will happen to the church. Another question. Is the church today filled with Ananias' and Sapphira's? Or are we filled up with more people like Joseph? Are we filled up with people who have sold out to the cause of Christ, who are committed in every faucet? Or are we filled with people who are content with trying to have one foot in and one foot out? Because if we're being honest, more of Ananias and Sapphira. But our actions as Christians in society should be a direct correlation with our sincere worship. That we are so aware and so enamored with God because of what he has done through Christ that we act in society as an offpouring of what he did for us. And that outpouring should have nothing to do with being halfway in and halfway out. Because that's what Israel was. If we truly want to worship God, we worship Him with humility, without any ounce of desire to see ourselves exalted, but to solely see Him exalted. There's this illustration that I want to close with. There's these two brothers who 
went their separate ways after high school, and, and one went off to college and became a brilliant, wealthy lawyer who operated on uh, Wall Street and had millionaire clients, and the other one became a farmer. And the, the lawyer came back home one day and, and visited his brother on the farm, and, and he said, I'm an investor on the stock market. I have clients who are millionaires, but here you are, stuck on this farm. I wonder what the difference is between you and I. And the farmer spoke, and he pointed out to the wheat field. He said, you see two types of wheat out there. You'll see wheat that is standing straight up. And in the head of that wheat, there's nothing. It's empty. That's why it stands so high. And then you'll see some wheat that is bent over. Because its head is full. The question is, are we types of believers that hold ourselves high, but are truly empty? Are we the types of believers that stand tall and exalt ourselves, but the Spirit of God doesn't actually truly reside in us? Or are we the wheat that is full, that is bent over, that is humble, that is serving others, that is serving God, that is willing to give everything in the worship and exaltation of the God who served us. So who do we reflect? Do we reflect Israel in the time of Amos? Or do we reflect the church in the time of Acts? Do we reflect Joseph, the man who willingly gave up everything because of how indebted he felt to Christ? Or do we reflect Ananias and Sapphira who just wanted to have one foot in each side? It's an important question that we each need to ask ourselves. Because I want to be the church that's humble, that submits to God. Because that same God who we get to worship is the same God that served us in his death. He said, yeah, I, I am the sovereign God, the sovereign king of all creation that I formed it out of my hands but I'm going to give my life up for that which I formed and serve them. Knowing that, why would we ever want to serve ourselves? So which are we going to do? It's an important question that we each need to wrestle with. And if you've come to Christ, I hope that you no longer desire to have one foot in the world and one foot in the church. And if you haven't come to Christ, I hope that you realize what he has done for you. And that that realization elicits a desire to serve him and accept him into your heart. Let's close it. Look over us as we go our separate ways. God, we live in a world that is so individualized. We live in a world that is telling us constantly to focus on ourselves, to elevate ourselves, to better ourselves, and yet, Lord, you have shown us the need to serve others, the need for us to be humble before coming before you. Lord, produce that sort of humility within us, the same humility that you had when you, the sovereign God of all creation, died on behalf of that unrighteous creation that we are. 
Give us the strength to be all in in our worship and service of you and not have one foot in and one foot out. Thank you, God, for loving us. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.